just missed it. And hits a fly ball into the corner and right. Carries back, 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 and it's gone! It's a home run for Carpenter! Into the basket and a three-run homer for Carpenter. His third home run of the day to go along with a pair of doubles. It's an amazing performance from the Cardinal first baseman. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Viva Alberto's podcast. I'm Tyler Kinsey. I'm a writer here at VEB and I'm joined by two people today. First off, we have editor at VEB. Just like last time and just like the time before, we have Heather Simon. How are you doing, Heather? Hey, Tyler. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good as well. We're recording this on an off night. It's currently Thursday night. She'll be hearing this Friday morning. But we're also joined by another guest of the podcast, VEB writer, and you can find them at a whole bunch of other places. That would be Mr. Lance Frizdowski. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on. All right. I'm doing good as well. And just, I don't want to reiterate a lot of what I said last episode, but we are kind of still in that state of a limbo with the Cardinals where we're in the middle of this kind of two, two and a half week stretch where we're not entirely sure what's going to happen yet, but... I think we might have a little more clarity now since we've recorded the Cubs series has happened, all five games, and also the three games against the Cincinnati Reds. And the Cardinals, they dropped three of five to the Cubs, and then they just dropped two of three to the Reds. So I guess I'll open this first question up to whoever wants to answer it first. What have been your kind of early impressions of the Mike Schilt era and the way the team has been playing in the last week or so? could take this i'll be the uh the moderator here <laughs> i'll answer a second go for it heather <laughs> well um there's not really much that has happened i he's done a couple things i agree with and um there's some things that uh i i don't i i don't get but i can't really think of any off the top of my head i just remember thinking oh that's probably weird but but yeah, I think he's been doing fine. Nothing too, no weird double switches or, uh, you know, keeping, he seems to be taking his pitchers out uh, about the right time. I know he uh, took out Ponce de Leon, even though he had a no-hitter going because he was kind of, his pitch count got up to in the 120s and it was a one-run game and he was getting hit a little bit harder, so it was probably about time to take him out anyway um so i thought that was good and the only thing is uh he still is like mike before him um doing that thing where they don't give yadi or molina any rest (laughs) and (laughs) um i know they're trying to make some sort of push to figure out what kind of team they're going to have so maybe that is a factor but it seems like Molina's been playing a lot lately, um, even for Molina standards. So that's other than that, I think he's doing fine so far. So good. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the more curious things was some of the Brett Cecil usage over the weekend. I know he pitched Friday and Sunday, and he got lit up both times. And he hadn't pitched, I think, since like the fourteenth of July or something like that. So, I in terms of bullpen management, I mean, the Cardinals bullpen as a whole has been terribly uh, uh, had a very bad uh, ability to perform at the level of what many would consider a better predictor of future success and FIP rather than ERA. And I think they have a pretty big discrepancy on that. I think the bullpen ERA is around 4.7, whereas their FIPs in the lower four is right around probably average. So 
I don't know how much you could criticize a guy like this for his bullpen usage when the bullpen just doesn't really seem to be pitching that well, almost at all. And mm-hmm. I can't say I really trust anyone in the bullpen right now, maybe aside from Jordan Hicks, who, I mean, we've been through the ups and downs with in terms of the media hyping him up just because he throws one or two. But then looking back and understanding that maybe there isn't too much command there with Hicks. But I, I still like Hicks a lot. I mean, their, their bullpen as a whole, though, is just it, it's not great. They got some guys coming off the books. They got some guys not coming off the books, which I'm sure Cardinal fans would like to see come off the books. So in terms of Schlitz management, I'm not – I've never been really blown away with anything he's done. But then again, I can't imagine too many interim managers who have been thoroughly impressive. You know, I, I, maybe I'm just – maybe something's escaping my mind here. But I feel like often we see interim managers and we tend to criticize them more. But I guess maybe just in comparison to Matheny, everything is a little bit better just because I don't think anyone really liked Matheny. So, uh, I mean, to each their own on that, I haven't been thoroughly impressed. But at the same time, I, I can't say I've been disappointed. It's just – I think the Cardinals play as a whole has been more disappointing than anything Schlitt has a direct impact on. Yeah, and I was... Tyler called it backup quarterback syndrome, kind of. He was referring to something else, but... Yeah, that idea that's... the same thing. (laughs) You want to see the guy who hasn't failed yet, and, you know, with the football (laughs) analogy, when the starting quarterback, for example, let's say Matheny is struggling, that's... You're kind of just willing to get anything else, even if the replacement isn't necessarily as effective. But I think, to Schell's credit, he has been a lot more effective than Matheny, and I think... He has done a pretty good job articulating that he doesn't want to get burned with some of these starting pitchers the third time through the lineup, and obviously, you know, that has been complicated, like Lance said, by some of the inconsistencies with the bullpen, especially outside of Norris and Hicks, but just as far as how the team in general has been playing, I wrote about it, I think it was right after Matheny got fired, about kind of the historical precedent for interim managers and how teams play kind of in the immediate aftermath of the manager getting fired. And I think the general conclusion was there might be some sort of marginal spark that is lit, so to say, but it's not like, you know, a 70-win team's all of a sudden going to play at a 100-win pace the rest of the way or anything. And for me, this past week, the early second half results have kind of just validated what we already knew about this team, which is, you know, the starting pitching has definitely been the strength, I think, with uh, Gomber and Ponce de Leon, obviously the peripherals might not match with them and how outstanding they were, but this club continues to churn out great starting pitching depth, but the lineup, especially at certain spots and the bullpen, I think really are the weakness. And, you know, right now the Cardinals' playoff hopes are probably dipping to 10 to 15%, and I just see it hard to envision this being a playoff team in their current state. I 100% agree with that. Yeah, I was actually just looking at the playoffs odds. I think they actually dipped below Pittsburgh in terms of uh, probably MLB.com, so maybe some other sites have different formulations for how they're calculating that specific percentage. But it was under 15%. It was right in that window you said, Tyler. And, yeah, I mean, it's funny, too, I, the, it, especially because I think Matheny got fired on the 14th of July, if I remember correctly. That's Saturday night. And then the Cardinals won on the 15th, and there was almost like some confirmation bias. Like, yes, Matheny was the issue. Now that we have Schlitt here, we'll win everything. And then, of course, you go to the All-Star break, and then you come back and lose three of five from the Cubs. Or, and then you lose you lose a series in Cincinnati, which is a must-win, in my opinion, if you're getting to the point where you're evaluating whether this team actually has anything, any resemblance of a chance, which at the moment just doesn't seem like anything. So, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's been interesting to see the reaction of a lot of Cardinals fans after the Matheny firing because there seemed to be a bit of – euphoria around that obviously but at the same time this team isn't playing well so so i mean i, I don't know like if Matheny's here are they going to be playing worse or better i just think i think most of the time it just comes down to team performance and it hasn't been too good so you have to be critical of the cardinals for sure 
Yeah, I guess as far as Mike Schultz, and it seems right now Mosellock and the Cardinals uh, kind of top brass like to side with the internal guys and the in-house coaches that they're more familiar with. So do you think right now on July 26th, would you make the prediction that Schultz will actually get the permanent job after the season? Or what do you think the Cardinals need to do for him to keep and kind of secure the job going forward? That's a tough one. Do you want to go first, Heather? Sure. (laughs) I think it's definitely his job to lose. There are some candidates. There's been rumors that Joe Girardi would really like the job in St. Louis. I feel like the reason the Yankees parted ways with him were similar reasons why the Cardinals parted ways with Mike Matheny. So I don't know if that's going to be a great fit. I liked Joe Girardi as a manager, but I don't know how how he'll fit if the reason the Yankees dismissed him was because he wasn't relating to the younger players or connecting with the younger players, and that's kind of the problem in St. Louis with Matheny. I think they have some other good candidates in the minors. We hear about Stubby Clapp. Um, he's the manager at... Uh, um, Memphis. Memphis. <laughs> I was forgetting what, what city that was. <laughs> um, yeah, he's the manager from the Memphis Redbirds, the AAA club. And then they have um, Pop Warner, who's been a manager and in the minors, and he's on the big league team now as a coach, but he has managerial experience. I feel like if they were going to hire him, or if they were going to hire him or anyone else, like Jose Okendo, people like to bring up, there was even this story about Yadier Molina being a player manager, which is probably ridiculous. But I feel like if they were going to do something like that, they would have just made that person the interim manager. So I think Mike Schilt, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, I think that he's their guy. He's the guy they want. And unless, you know, Terry Francona wants to come back and manage the Cardinals again, I think he might be their guy. Yeah, I'm I'm not really sure. I think that I tend to think outside of the box with a lot of these things, which is probably in strong contrast to how much of the Cardinals organization has been run for the last couple of years. I mean, we've had two managers for I, the last, what, like 20-something years since, like, 96 was the like I think. my whole life almost. Yeah, right? And so it's like <laughs> we have we have two managers, and it seems to me like a shield is, is kind of just in here as almost like a, a bandage on the wound, <laughs> you know? And eventually you'll have to rip off that bandage and, and put someone else in there. It's a terrible metaphor, but uh, I guess work <laughs> with me on it. But, uh, but I mean, I'm not really sure. I, I think I'd be a proponent of going with, a really young manager. I think we've seen the success of Boone in New York, um, which is, I don't think has been talked about nearly as, as much as it should have been or should has been in the last couple months or so. He's done a fantastic job. Same with Gabe Kapler as well. Again, two outside the box guys who are much younger can relate to the younger players. Whereas the Cardinals, I think have tended towards older managers and um, players, excuse me, coaches of that nature who are a little bit more I, I, seasoned, I guess you could say, but at the same time, <laughs> I think you, you start to realize that maybe youth is needed, which I don't think will actually happen. I have a feeling that they'll go someone like the Girardi path. I think that that's the most popular name I've seen kicked around. But in my personal opinion, I'd love to see them go outside the box. I think 
I, I can't say no much about Pop Warner or Stubby Clap, but they have both unbelievable names, I have to say. So right, um, those are great. I, I would take either of them just for the <laughs> visuals of all the all the headlines we'd be able to, we'd be able to come up with on VEB uh, for columns. Um, but uh, but I, I don't know. I want to see them go outside the box. I think that I, I wouldn't say it's, it's Schilt's job, but then again, I don't really have any, I'd say, proprietary insight that would swimming me in one direction or the other. I just have a gut feeling that he's more of a bandage and that the Cardinals will go in another direction in the offseason. And I'm really interested to see where they go because it seemed like Matheny and LaRusso were, were cornerstones and they seemed to like that model of here's a manager, we're going to have him here for 10 years and create a very, very fluid relationship between front office staff and on-field. So if they bring in someone weirder, like a, I, I, can't even, I can't even think of anyone that's on the market for a manager job like this that's maybe a little bit younger. But if they consider someone like that, I think it's a strong deviation from what they've done. And it'd be really interesting for me just to see how the team adapts to something like that. But I, I can't say. I, I'm not really sure. Maybe it is Schilt's job. Um, but I, I have a feeling that the Cardinals are going to struggle for the next month or so. So it's not going to really good look, look good optically going to the offseason if they're a, a really, really sub-500 team and he has to hold the job coming into next year. Yeah, and to echo what DeWitt said at that press conference that Sunday morning after they fired Matheny, he is a big proponent of kind of this Cardinals brand that is very centered around continuity with the club, and that goes with on-field results, but also the staff and the coaches around the club. But like he also said, if, you know, if that continuity isn't bringing about the results you want on the field, and it's looking like the Cardinals are going to miss the playoffs for the third straight year, then I definitely think you could see some shakeups. Absolutely, I agree with that. My only, um, like, argument against them bringing bringing in not even an argument but I don't think that they I feel like they went outside of the box with their hiring of Matheny it doesn't seem like it now because it's been six and a half years and he's kind of familiar to us but when they first hired him he was the young he was that young players manager that was supposed to relate to the younger players and that's what he was supposed to be and I feel like he was that at first but it's almost like familiarity breeds I don't know I don't know how to explain it like favoritism almost so it almost seems like Matheny showed favoritism for certain players that he knew like the Peter Borges John Jay wars of (laughs) 2014 or 2015 whatever that was and then there's um, you know Alan Craig versus Oscar Tavares type of thing it just seems like the players he knew he was very loyal to them which is nice except that when you have a younger better player coming in you need to play that player so that's the only that would be my only uh argument with them with the possibility of them bringing in a younger like a younger more more player manager kind of manager uh is because they they tried that and and not that that wouldn't have worked if they would have gotten the right person but they I feel like they're gonna well, they're gonna want to go with someone maybe not but I'm thinking they want to go with someone that's like smart <laughs> not that Matheny is not smart <laughs> he's smart in his own you know he knew, he's smart about a lot of things but I think they're gonna gonna go with like like that's how Gabe Kapler is too he's a younger guy but he's very analytically focused and thinking and I think they're gonna want that's like the new thing that the new fad that's gonna hit baseball 
are these like younger, maybe younger, not necessarily even younger, but because older people can like stats too, but these more like stat sabermetric minded managers, I think that's where baseball is going to go eventually. I think we're going to see that. And I hope the Cardinals get on that, that kind of that train. (laughs) Your phrasing there of older people can like stats too is fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that. Stats are for everyone. (laughs) You know, men, women, young, old, Unless anyone else had any kind of final managerial thoughts, I guess we can kind of segue into the current series, which will be starting the day you're all listening to this, and that's the series at Bush Stadium. A weekend set against the Cubs, and this could be potentially, if things don't break right for the Cardinals, kind of the final nail in the proverbial coffin this season, or it could be you know, two out of three or a sweep that maybe keeps this team alive and convinces the Cardinals to buy because... We're basically right there up at the trade deadline, you know. I believe it's on Tuesday, July 31st. So what are you two kind of looking for in this series, particularly as it pertains to what direction the club will go towards as we near the trade deadline? Do you want to go first, Heather? Sure. Um, I think they definitely have to win the series. If they don't, that's it. That's. I mean, they've come back from larger deficits than this before. But this team does not have that same, like, everyone talks about the 2011 team and great comebacks. But that 2011 team had people coming back from injury. Uh, They made a big blockbuster trade to kind of shore up their bullpen. And they were sort of an underperforming team that was had a lot of offensive talent. This one is, I think they're underperforming for sure. But I don't see them having that same offensive ceiling is that 2011 team and I just don't think you can expect that to happen every year and I'm an optimist so if I'm saying that then <laughs> you know that, it, that I really mean it but I don't if they don't win if they don't win this series I think it the the season isn't over like there's still baseball we played and baseball is great so still obviously watch baseball because it's awesome but I don't think the playoffs are a logical possibility if they don't win this series ideally in a perfect world they would they need to sweep it really for them to have any sort of any sort of chance because even two out of three they only pick up a game and i i mean that would be fine but i think they really they really need a sweep otherwise we might see some some assets get traded away which would be kind of sad <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see particularly yeah it, if they drop two of three or even if they win even if they win two of three here just how right. that influences what exactly is available and is on the table for the cardinals and if they do anything i feel like notoriously the Cardinals tend not to do too too much around deadline time there's always rumors like i, I just saw something today that they're interested in donaldson but they haven't had any discussions which is probably you could literally say that about any team and any player. I would guess that I'm sure any any I'm sure every team in baseball is interested in a guy like Chris Archer. It's just that I mean it, it doesn't really matter until you actually have a discussion with the team regarding what's on the table, etc. So I, I don't know. I'm just interested to see what exactly affects this series. Like we're facing up two lefties. It seems like we'll get Quintana and Mike Montgomery. Cars are pretty even both ways versus lefties and righties. So I don't think that's too big of a concern. Um, if Dakota Hudson comes up and pitches Sunday. 
that is interesting or if that gets moved around maybe into Carhartt's next start we'll see looks like Weaver and Michaelis are Friday Saturday from what I was looking at so um I, I'm I'm I hope they could win like they have an extended home series here with the Rockies coming to town I believe for four games as well and then they go into Pittsburgh so this is a this is a solid stretch of games here but at, at the most important is obviously these three games against the Cubs because that's just prior to the trade deadline I think that'll have the biggest influence on it and one of the things I want to bring up too is is, is Jairo Munoz um, and his play in the month of July. He's been unbelievable. He's got a 176 weighted runs created plus, um, almost even strikeout to walk too, and he's not really having any break any breaking ball issues or anything. He's he's a really young guy. He's kind of like a utility guy. He looks like he's played a bunch of positions. Um, he's hit the ball really well. Some of it might be some bad luck from what I was seeing over the weekend, but it seems like Schilt has some tendency to play him. They played him in both halves of the doubleheader, and then they haven't sat him since I believe. I think he played. He didn't play Thursday, but he played Friday, both games Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So it seems like he's riding the hot end here with Munoz. So I, I would be stunned if, if Munoz gets a break over the weekend just because of how hot he's playing. So maybe they can ride him. Maybe kick him up a little bit in the order and, and rely on a bat like his to push you guys, push us into some of these games. With, with Weaver hasn't been too great, and Michael seems to be evening out. and then uh, But it's going to be tough because Quintana and Hendricks are probably two of the better pitchers in that Cubs rotation. We're not getting Carmart and we're not getting a guy like Waka out there to be able to square off against them. So I can't say I'm optimistic about this series, but I, I, I'm particularly interested to see how it influences, if at all, the, the trade deadline decisions that are made. Yeah, and to your point about Munoz, I think a lot of that, you know, to his credit, he has definitely taken advantage of, especially recently, Colton Wan going on the disabled list. And I think with the current state of the infield, those at-bats are going to be there, and I think she'll rightfully so is stuck with the hot hand who is Munoz, and even if, like you said, batted ball luck is kind of propping up some of that offensive success, he still has, you know, the plate discipline has looked a lot more improved since when he was a little more raw at the beginning of the season, and a guy like him with his defensive versatility, there really is a premium on that now, so I think he definitely could be a valuable asset for the Cardinals going forward. I guess... You know, there have been rumors, and who knows by the time that this gets posted what will be what will happen with Dakota Hudson, if he gets promoted or not. With the current bullpen state and guys like Greg Collins struggling, Brett Cecil struggling, are there any changes you would make as far as sending guys up or down or possibly releasing guys? Um, I'll jump in a little bit. I, I don't really know exactly. Like, you have Norris and Holland who are free agents. I know there seems to be some rumors that Holland gets DFA'd, and that is the move that corresponds to bring Hudson up. Um, maybe you could bring up one of their, like, Ponce de Leon, I, I really like the start of, honestly. I think that he's got a lot of natural movement. Um, his command isn't the greatest, but I want to see him almost as a starting pitcher. I wrote a column on this the other day about, about Ponce de Leon, but we'll see exactly what happens there. But I, 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 I'm not exactly sure if anything they do between AAA and the majors is going to make a substantial difference, and I think that's what it boils down to for me. So I would defer to almost management in this situation to understand the financial implications going forward of, of DFA and a guy like Holland and what that happened, what that does to the books, et cetera. But you got Gregerson and Cecil on under contract, I think for the next two years. And it's not really looking too great right now, but that's something you're going to have to stomach. So I guess that, that is what it is. But if you can cut bait on Holland, I guess do that. He hasn't been great at all this year. That seemed to be, I think it's signing everyone was excited for it to some extent just because of how good he was in the past, but obviously hasn't produced anything. So I, I tend not to have strong opinions on a lot of up and down management like this when I don't think it have a, a substantial effect on the bullpen itself where you have Norris and Hicks at the back end right now probably two of the better relievers and then the rest of it you know 
it becomes relevant because we don't have starting pitchers going seven innings consistently, which is obviously an issue because then the sixth and the seventh become much more um, high leverage of situations that we don't have Hicks and Norris for, that I assume Schilt isn't going to bring those guys forward into the high leverage situations. He seems to be a little more traditional in his usage and not highlighting those high leverage situations like we've seen with guys like Andrew Miller on other teams where, you know, Frank is bringing them in in the sixth when there's a couple guys on base or even what we've seen with the Yankees to some extent. So, I'm, I'll defer to management on this. You know, I can't say I have strong opinions either way, but I wouldn't be stunned if there are some some guys going up and down. I just don't think it'll have too big of an impact. Yeah, I haven't really even been able to keep track of who's hurt and who's being optioned and who's being called up because it's so been so crazy lately. I know that Ponce de Leon was optioned and Gomber was brought up the next day. So there's a spot for him, and I, 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 it's hard to keep track. I know that they have uh, Ryan Sheriff on the 40 man. He's an option to be DFA'd, um, and then see if he clears waivers, which I would imagine he would, uh, and then that would clear up a spot. There's a lot of, I guess, mental gymnastics that has to happen to figure out how to make the, these rosters work. And it's going to get more complicated because I imagine they will be bringing back uh, Adam Wainwright at some point unless they hold off until September call-ups. So, I don't know. <laughs> I guess they're doing they're doing the best they can. <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting. Mosellock was talking to Bernie Miklas on his radio show today, and they were talking about Dakota Hudson and possible corresponding moves and Mosellock kind of paused and essentially said that he anticipated sort of a lot of moving parts and he wasn't comfortable in kind of committing to one thing at the moment which I think could indicate that there is some flexibility in the situation between what happens now on July 31st obviously if the Cardinals lose the series to the Cubs like we said and fall out of the race I think you know someone like Bud Norris who's an expiring contract he'll be a free agent I think you are right to just kind of throw him out there on the trademark and sort of pick up whatever future value you can for him. I think maybe you look to DFA guy like Greg Collins, who's also on an expiring deal. Cecil concerns me just physically because there has been the velocity decline this year, which I don't know if that's just age and natural regression with him, or if that's some sort of injury. I think you could look to DL him, maybe minor league rehab start before rosters expand in September, but I think I am airing towards the sides of, obviously, these veteran players are underproducing, kind of just seeing what you have with a lot of these younger guys uh, that have succeeded in the high minors and are kind of breaking through now to the major league club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those guys is Tyler Webb, too. He's a lefty down in Memphis right now. He's a pretty big kid. Um, I think he was up a little bit this year. His results in AAA, I think, have been probably some of the best. Um, nah, Bowman's have been really, really good through 14 innings. I'm looking at fan graphs right now, but... But then again, Bowman has a much larger sample at the major league level that has not been good at all. So <laughs> we have some really bad parts of this bullpen between Bowman and Cecil and some of these other guys who just are getting lit up. And it's almost somewhat surprising to me because Bowman was really good last year from what I remember in, in terms of his performance. And it, maybe it was a little bit of him overperforming. He wasn't striking out a lot of guys, but he's had a strikeout jump this year. It's just that doesn't seem like that's helped him at all, which is generally contrary to what I, I would expect if you told me Bowman had a strikeout increase. It seems like maybe that would become more of a high-leverage guy, but instead we've seen it with guys like Jordan Hicks. So there's options. It looks like they have Tyler Webb, Ryan Sheriff, Ponce de Leon, um, Bowman, Connor Green, all on the 40-man down in Memphis right now. So maybe some parts move in and out of that, but um, I don't know. Those, none of, no one on that list seems to be 
you know, the savior right now. It seems like it's Norris, Norris and uh, Hicks, and then you kind of throw your hands up and you, you pray that Schill can figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and then one thing we kind of neglected to mention, who knows, maybe Dakota Hudson could be an option out of the bullpen, or maybe they move Gantz into the bullpen, move Hudson into rotation. The Cardinals do have a lot of flexibility here, so I think they certainly have options, both on the current big league roster and also with the options down in Memphis. So, And then, of course... There might be trades made with other teams or transactions where you're getting somebody from the outside or sending somebody away to another team elsewhere. So I think it will be interesting to see. And it's kind of tough as a fan and as a writer because we're kind of just playing out this waiting game right now. We're obviously, if we were recording this podcast a week from today, we definitely have a lot more clarity about where the bullpen lies. Absolutely, I agree. I guess we can end the discussion with the Cubs Give me a win prediction. Of these three games against the Cubs, how many do you think they will win, and what do you think the Cardinals will do after that? I'll say they win two out of three um, at home. Um, I, I almost want to say one out of three just because I, I, I'm worried about Quintana and Hendricks back-to-back over the weekend. But I'll say two out of three. I'll be confident to say two out of three. And I don't think it affects drastically what they do. Maybe it gives them some inspired hope that there's a better than whatever 10 30% chance they actually make the playoffs. Um, and I get, I, I bet small pieces get moved, whether it be a DFA of a guy like Holland or even, I can't imagine them trading for a large piece. I, I, I don't know. I, I'd say, so I'll say two out of three and it doesn't really affect anything, but I think the cars will make a small move here or there. I do not feel good about this series at all. <laughs> I think, I don't, I think they maybe win one of three. I hope they win all of them, obviously, and I would love for them to do that. But I don't know. I don't feel good about it. I have a bad feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I can't explain it. I just, when we go over the pitching matchups, it just, it doesn't, and Colton Wong, well, not Colton Wong's out, so I just don't have a good feeling about it. I don't know. Yes. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, it just feels like, it feels like a trap, like, but not a trap because, <laughs> because the Cubs are good, so it's not like one of those trap games, you know, but it just mm-hmm. feels like it's set up well for it to be disappointing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, certainly if you're playing the probabilities with the Cubs being the better team, although the Cardinals have home field advantage, I think the safe bet would definitely be to take the Cubs to win two out of three of these games, and I think that is what I'll go with if the Cardinals lose the series, but Again, like Lance said, I don't think this series, no matter how it ends up, is really going to trigger an avalanche of huge consequential moves one way or another. So I think this will be kind of the prototypical trade deadline we've got accustomed to, where the Cardinals are a bit more conservative, kind of making those smaller moves. Maybe they add or trade away, make some moves in the bullpen with a relief piece. But again, I don't think there's going to be anything between now and the trade deadline that really moves the needle on this season, at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm right there with you. All right, so I guess we can shift away now from the major league team and kind of focus more on the minor league. I know, Lance, you follow Peoria a lot, and they've had a pretty successful year this year. I'm pretty sure they're first overall in their division overall this season. I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way the minor leagues do their playoffs, it's if you win your championship for the division the first half or the second half, you clinch a playoff spot. Mm-hmm. I believe that that is how it works. It also depends on what league. Like, the Midwest League is a little bit weirder because it's full-season A-ball, so I think they're structured differently. I, I actually – so background on me, I'm actually from the Northeast, from the Boston, New York area, like in that vicinity, Northeast. So 
I was so used to Eastern League ball, which is like double A. Um, didn't really get really any Cardinal affiliates, and then I actually just moved out to Chicago. So now I get Peoria and Midwest League around here. So it's a little bit lower level, and it, I'm still learning how the structure of the postseason works for Midwest League A ball. So it is a little bit different, I believe, than just the standard Eastern League, which is literally just a simple two divisions, top two teams in each division play, and then the championship is crowned. So there is some first half, second half implications here. And I know in the Southern Atlantic League, which is high A for a lot of teams. So, um, but yeah, Peoria is, is, is playing really well overall. They're, they're a fun team to watch. It's a nice park down there. I actually went down there for the first time the other week, but um, I've been following the team caps pretty closely. So that was actually one of the reasons I was down there. Um, and the Midwest League is pretty tough in terms of being more probably of a pitcher's park than a hitter's park for the most, or most of the parks, I'd say, in general. So you see a lot of dominant pitching performances. There's a couple guys on Fort Wayne specifically, like Luis Patino. He's a kind of a breakout uh, Padres starter who's kind of come out of nowhere. He's a little bit of an undersized guy, but everyone really likes him. You see a lot of guys like that who kind of break out and, and start to gain some helium and then um, helium their way up through prospect lists. And next thing you know, they start, start to creep into the top 100s and such. But um, but the thing with Peoria is that they actually have a lot of very, very consistent bats. And, and the funniest thing is that there isn't really any bona fide prospects on the team, I would say, which is general deviation from a team that is playing this well. You generally hope that there's a couple guys you're like, oh, wow, I'm really excited about this guy in the future. But if you look at the team in totality, you know, you have former first-round pick Nick Plummer in the outfield, not really playing too well. Bryce Dan as well. Again, probably one of the guys really isn't playing too, too well. But then you go to some of the middle infield bats, corner bats. Alaris Montero is probably the biggest name that a lot of people would know. But I don't think many people would consider him a top-ten prospect in the Cardinals system. Third baseman, a little bit of a bigger body. I saw him for the first time at the Midwest League All-Star game in Lansing, Michigan. And I actually didn't think he had that big of a body. But the more I kind of watched him and the more I, I got a second look at him when I went back to Peoria to see um, Peoria play the team caps, I start to kind of understand what they mean by big body. And I think the big body term is uh, by Long and Hagen from Fangraphs, who's their prospect guy who I like um, a lot. I like his opinions a lot. And it's fun to reconcile his opinions with, with what you think when you actually go out and see some of these guys. But it's listed at 6'3", 195, Laris Montero. Um, and his bat is really, really good. It's extremely advanced. His approach is, is beautiful. Really good bat to ball. He's one of those guys that just tends to barrel everything. Um, in Peoria, the night I was there, the ball was, really wasn't jumping off anyone's bat. And he hit, I think, two of the hardest balls probably that night, both to the track. I think one was to left center, one was to right center. It might be more gap-to-gap power, but um, he is in this weird line now where the Cardinals have a lot of young third base depth, which I find very interesting because I don't think that's really something in the time. I've been a Cardinals fan that, that it's been extensive, that has been a, a strength of theirs. It always seems to be pitching. They always seem to have other guys who jump up and down through the system that you start to keep an eye on. A couple years ago it was Carson Kelly. Now it's Andrew Kisner. Like they have these guys that kind of float up and you get intrigued by. Even like Jairo Munoz who came over, I think, from the Athletics. Like there's a lot of guys like this who kind of jumped in the system, but they can never blow up into into bigger stars. But I think back to like Zach Cox a while ago, who was one of the bigger third base props that the Cardinals have. But aside from him, I don't think there's been much. But now you have Alaris Montero, and he's almost overshadowed a little bit by Nolan Gorman, who they drafted in the first round this year, and Malcolm Nunez, who they paid three hundred thousand dollars, which was the max in this signing period for them um, to swipe from Cuba, who is, again, another one of these kind of bigger-bodied third basemen with a really, really polished bat. And I, I'd almost say that goes for Gorman as well. Gorman, I, I've always been a massive fan of Gorman, even before he was drafted by the Cardinals. So the fact that he went to the Cardinals was a personal victory, I would say, of mine, because I, I really was aggressive on him in, in some of the draft research I did and some of the rankings I did. He's a lefty bat. He's got, to obviously, some swing and miss versus left-handed pitchers. 
Um, I think he's out in Johnson City right now. He's hitting really well. The biggest thing with him right now in Johnson City is that he's he's got some discipline, which I was a little bit worried about that we'd see like a really high strikeout rate with like a sub 10% walk rate. But I think he's walking around like 15, 16% of the time and striking out around 20% of the time. Malcolm Nunez, we haven't really got too many looks at. He's really young. But again, he's he's almost like a duplicate of Alaris Montero. I think he has a little more power. He's got a little weird of a hitch in his swing, Malcolm Nunez. But um, I think going forward, the Carlos, Carlos probably see him as like a third base, first baseman. But it seems like if any of these guys actually make it up to the major league level at any point, that we're going to have some bit of a deficiency at third base in terms of defense goes. Because I don't think anyone's defense here really grades out as even average, I would say. Gorman, I hope, could get to average. And then maybe that tails off if he, as he fills out to his body because he's still really young and he's only 19. But um, I think Alaris Montero is right in that age gap as well. So, um, But going back to Peoria a little bit, I don't mean to kind of deviate and talk about third base depth of the Cardinals. But um, they have other guys like uh, Julio Rodriguez is really interesting. He's a catcher. Um, I liked a little bit of him that I saw um, when I was down in Peoria at the All-Star game itself. Yara Gonzalez is the first baseman um, switch hitter. He's got a really polished bat again. And I believe, actually, I'm looking at the roster right now. I didn't even realize that Luke and Baker is up in Peoria now, who is a TCU draft prospect of theirs. I think he went in the second or third round. Really, really another one of these huge, huge guys with a lot of power, but really, again, poor, def- poor defensively. He's more of a first baseman. So at the lower minors, you basically have a lot of guys who are not good defenders, but polished bats. And that seems to be one of the things that's driving Peoria to a lot of victories. And maybe that works for Peoria in the Midwest League. I just don't know how well it projects out into full-fledged major league talent which at the end of the day is what they're trying to do in peoria so um i like alaris montero um i think that there's some development to happen with him defensively if he wants to become a viable third baseman if he moves to first base i'm a little bit worried that he just gets pushed out by someone who's probably a, a bit of a bigger prospect even guy like luke and baker if gorman if that's gorman's eventual destination then he'll probably push out alaris as well but for now alaris i think is a, is a prospect that everyone should keep an eye on especially if you're a little bit interested in maybe some of the names outside of the top 10 on the cardinals list yeah, and we should probably preface this. Heather and I, I think we're literate in being able to carry a conversation with the higher <laughs> minor leagues, but I guess we'll just say, Lance, you took all the words right out of our mouth. Exactly. Yeah, what I was <laughs> thinking the exact same thing. It's so weird. I don't have anything to add. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the whole time he's talking, I'm like, how does he know all this? <laughs> I follow a lot of minor league baseball, which is yeah. terrifying for most people. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's good. What? I mean, like, I guess I want, I'm interested in you guys just in terms of, you know, are you guys worried at all, like, as to what I said, and just understanding that there's a lot of guys with really good bats at the minor leagues, but maybe defensively is not too much. None of these guys are really plus. Like, in terms of your perfect prospect on the corner, would you prefer a guy with a really polished bat or a guy with a really polished glove? Because I almost feel like Andrew Kisner, who I, I, I would guess both of you know, is a little bit of a higher-up guy. Um, he's another guy. I think he played third base at NC State, but... He is now a full-fledged catcher, and his defense is probably a little bit better, I would say, than his his projection power-wise. He seems to be a good contact hitter, but it's almost like, do you want guys who are a little good defensively that have some offensive deficiency, or would you rather try to polish them defensively? That's always something I kind of grapple with, and I was interested, I guess, just in your guys' opinion on it. It depends on the position, which is kind of a a cop-out answer, but like catcher or shortstop or center field, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like obviously you can go with, uh, a weaker bat and a better glove and it'll kind of even itself out third base i think i'd rather have a, that was tough but it's i think tough, I'd, right? ra- yeah. I'd rather have a better bat man but really good defensive third basemen's are my like our third basemen are my weakness like some of my favorite <laughs> players ever have been scott Rowland, and i yeah. love watching like um, Arenado and Machado mm-hmm. play third base. 
so that's not fair. <laughs> but, you know, first base, you definitely just need a bat. Like, we would prefer them to be able to stand at first base and not, like, injure someone, which is what I fear with Jose Martinez every day. It's that, like, Matt Carpenter um, has the, like, coordination for first base. He just isn't super used to it. So uh, he is passable there, and he could possibly be really good at it. Where Jose Martinez has the combination of, like, uncoordination and also, like, poor – he has, like, poor footwork and also, like, uh, is uncoordinated. And so he's, like, bad at first base to where he could not only injure himself but injure others. Yeah, like, have you ever played sports – yeah, have you ever played sports with those people that are so uncoordinated that they're a threat to you and not just yeah. themselves? I've had someone jam my finger playing basketball before, and I was so mad because they did it with their own, like, clumsiness. <laughs> and I'm like, this is it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Heather, so. <laughs> to, to bring a reference to last week, was this Carlos Martinez when you were playing basketball with him? Yeah. <laughs> He's not clumsy. He just didn't have, like, the basketball skill set, but you could tell he was an athletic person. Where there's some people that not only do they not have this, like, there's some people that have the skills and they're not athletic. And then there's some people that are athletic and don't have, like, the practice of, at that certain skill. Uh, and then there's some people that aren't athletic and also don't have the practice, and they're just a danger to everyone around them. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I feel like. You can't have that at first base. So you'd rather maybe someone that's, that has some sort of athleticism to them. It doesn't have to be speed or, or even agility, but coord- coordination, just simple coordination is, is good. But yeah, so to answer your original question after this very long-winded answer, <laughs> um, <laughs> is it kind of depends on the position, but I think that, man, and it, it's like a monkey's paw sort of situation too because – we've been watching this Cardinal team make a bunch of errors in the past couple seasons. And that's been incredibly frustrating. So I, I don't know because uh, I think, cause I would want to say you want the bat and just mm-hmm. try to out hit everyone. But you, you also, it's also really painful to watch a bunch of errors be made. So I don't know. I want both. I can't answer this question. I won't. Re- I don't understand it. And I won't respond to it. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm the ruthless quant guy who, uh, and I think part of this is like I've been numbed by watching these pretty poorly fundamentally played Cardinals teams the past few years. Right. But yeah, it's frustrating to watch the errors and all that. And it is fun to watch, you know, the high speed guys that can take the extra base, but. Is I took a lot of flack for for that uh, Whitey Ball post I wrote a couple months ago. <laughs> I really don't care about the aesthetic of the team as long as it's like a successful team that's playing well. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, Jose Martinez is kind of an example of this where it's not pretty to watch him play defense. And maybe that's not the perfect example because his defensive deficiencies are so extreme where it really eats into a lot of his value as a hitter. But. One aspect I think to take into account, too, is my answer to this is probably different if I'm the fan of an American League team. I think that's part of the reason that a team like the Red Sox, they took uh, Clemson first baseman slash outfielder Seth Beer in the first round, I believe, this year is because they kind of have the luxury of the designated hitter at their disposal. And I think it is Mm -hmm. an inevitability in the National League. I don't know 
how soon, maybe as soon as the next CBA, possibly, but... In the National League, you really don't have that luxury. And someone like Jose Martinez, for example, you kind of just have to try to hide them at one of these positions lower in the defensive spectrum. So it really is a difficult question, I think. And again, to copy Heather, I'm going to go with another cop-out answer. <laughs> I think it kind of just depends on the skill set of the player. But, you know, as far as scouting goes, I think there is something to be said about the athletic players who are a bit more projectable and... Especially in places like Latin America, if you can kind of teach the guys the baseball skills. I'll put it this way. The athletic guys have the higher upside, I think, as opposed to mm-hmm. the hit-first guys who maybe have the higher floor and will hit well, kind of the quad-A minor league hitters. Mm-hmm. Basically, I want the ones that are going to win. So whichever, <laughs> whichever one is going to win, that's the one I pick. I just don't know which one that is yet. See, I go into these podcasts every time thinking... I'm going to try to get through the whole thing without saying something stupid. And I've yet to do that one time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't and, think that was a stupid answer at all. Okay. <laughs> I just feel like I'm like, I'm like, this is the time, Simon. You are not going to say anything stupid. <laughs> you will get through this whole podcast without sounding dumb. And I don't feel like I've ever been successful. And so, <laughs> um, <laughs> I try my best. I mean, I'll I'll bring up something that is arguably stupid, but I think it might be interesting to discuss. And I I enjoy just speculating on random things like this because I'm always inspired by. I really like Bill Simmons. uh, Give it, take it or leave it. I I know a lot of people don't like him, but he always has this thing called conspiracy bill, and he comes up with like random out of the box answers. And the one I come up with around the Cardinals is is relates back to something we very briefly alluded to in terms of Tyler. You talking about the eventual maybe DH in the NL. Maybe the Cardinals are stacking up on these guys because they think that in the next three or four years there will be a DH in the NL. And then what they're doing in terms of aggregating some of these guys who are really good bats becomes a lot more – it becomes a lot easier to tolerate. Because then you could see a scenario where they get a guy like Luke and Baker who's a 6'4", 250-pound human who is extremely large and can't play defense at all. You move him to DH, then you move a guy like Alaris Montero to first – and then you put the kind of okay Nolan Gorman at third. And then four years down the road, you're like, hey, this kind of worked. Whereas if you look at the team now where you have to, you don't have a DH, then one of those guys is getting pushed out, even though all three of them can probably hit, I hope, eventually at an average level at the major league level. So my conspiracy, conspiracy bill idea is that maybe the Cardinals are guessing uh, very astutely that DH will come to the NL eventually. And maybe you're loading up, or maybe you're being more inclined to take some of these corner infield guys who are really good bats but not good defensively. It's a thought. I don't know if it's true. It probably is really dumb, but you never know. <laughs> That's an interesting thought, though. I never even thought of, like, because if the DH does come to the NL, if they're not prepared. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean if that won't be the the worst possible thing, but, I mean, it would be an interesting problem if you're not prepared for the DH. I would imagine they would have to give them some time. Yeah, that's my thought as well, so. But maybe, it, maybe it's too far off the matter, but there's a thought that passed through my head, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I think I've actually had the same thoughts a couple of times myself with the Cardinals about how it, it does seem like they have, especially in the past couple of years, gone with kind of these college bats or the, you know, more offensively oriented players. And for me personally, I've always been in favor of the National League adopting the DH and if you disagree with, me, disagree with me, you're an ancient charlatan, and that's the end of the discussion there. 
<laughs> what is that saying? Uh, oh, oh, something. Oh, what is that off of uh, where he's like, except you're wrong and I hate you. You're entitled to your opinion, except you're wrong and I hate you or something like that. I can't remember what TV show that is, Arrested Development or something like that. But that's what that just reminded me of. It's like, you're free to your opinion, except for you're an ancient charlatan. <laughs> it's not welcoming the future. <laughs> well, I'm I not a DH person, only because I would be more in favor of it. They would allow you to DH for any player, not just the pitcher. That's my argument. It doesn't make sense as a rule to me that you, it has to be for the pitcher. I think it should be... You can just have ADH, and you can DH for any player that you so choose. And it would make – obviously, most teams would use it for the pitcher because that would be the, the best decision. But I think you should have the choice. <laughs> yeah. I think just making it for the pitcher takes a lot of the fun out of it and a lot of the like create, creative element out of it and a lot of the – I don't know, like, uh, I can't think, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but a lot of the craftiness, you know, of the manager, or a lot of the strategy, strategy, a lot of the strategy mm -hmm. out of it. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know where I land on it. I feel like I tend to not hold strong opinions on this where other people hold very strong opinions. So <laughs> I like, I like deferring in situations as you've probably noticed already. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that, to some extent, we see scenarios where there's clear that there should be a DH. I, I don't particularly enjoy pitchers hitting, but I also have this I, – I enjoy the two-way players, uh, especially Otani, but even some of the ones in the lower minors who I think might actually have a shot to be two-way at the major league level eventually. Um, but I, I don't know how that really like, – it's not like, like, like Michael, Michael Lorenzen. We just played the, the Reds. I don't even remember if we got to look at him at all, but he's a really good hitter, you know, and – I am almost inclined to think that he has elevated value because of the D, because of the non-DH in the NL. So for him, obviously, he wants to continue to hit. But at the same time, it's like maybe we start to bring more two-way players like Michael Lorenzen where even if the DH comes to the NL, um, there's still value for a reliever who can actually put the bat on the ball. But I almost also feel like in, the rational, in a rational sense that that will become less and less likely if there is no reason for a pitcher to take BP which in the AL probably is the exact sentiment right now, if I'm thinking, because why on earth would a pitcher need to take batting practice? So that skill diminished over time, et cetera, et cetera. But Michael Lorenzo, the guy in the NL, is probably taking BP every time he's every time he's able to, you know, as consistently as he's able to. It's not as projected to start throwing a bullpen or whatever. So we're devolving into the whole <laughs> world of uh, pitchers hitting, which I didn't expect, but hey, it's always fun. <laughs> Yeah, and this is another area where I'm not entirely sure. I know, I think it varies from league to league in the minor leagues, but do the Cardinals have any affiliates that actually use the DH? Um, so I believe the only way, and I, I think I'm going to, I might be wrong on this, but I think the only way that a pitcher hits in the minor leagues is if they are both National League teams, and, the national, and I think that's the only way. They both have to be National League teams, because I was at a... Uh, Hartford Yard Goats Harrisburg Senators game a while ago probably three months ago and the pitchers hit in that game and that was the Rockies and the Nationals affiliates so 
even if the NL team is home and they're playing an AL team on the road, there's no pitcher hitting, I believe. So there are circumstances where minor league pitchers can't hit. It's just they both have to be NL, I believe. Mm-hmm. Huh. So that basically will never happen in the Midwest League for Peoria because I, I believe most of the Midwest League is actually NL teams to confirm that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess to kind of go back to what we were talking about Peoria and some of the lower minor league teams for the Cardinals, Palm Beach has been successful. They've been first overall this year, and... Were they the yeah they were the co champions last year in their league because I think their championship series coincided right with kind of that bout of tropical storms last year where yeah. they had to cancel it yeah mm-hmm. in the Florida State League I believe there was a lot of cancellations mm-hmm. out there which was kind of a bummer but uh, um, I'm checking the roster right now to see if they have anyone but um, I'm not sure how they're playing I unfortunately it's hard the minor leagues is like a whole nother everything like it's hard <laughs> I feel like I've I've attuned myself to the Midwest League this year so I kind of know like what's going on there but like. Triple A, I'm not really sure to most extent, and then even lower, it's like you almost like add a minor league league, and it's very hard to keep up with like a whole other five levels of baseball. It's it's very confusing <laughs> at times. But uh, but um, Palm Beach actually, oh okay, they have this is cool. Um, Brian Dobzanski is a reliever who I spoke with at the um, the Midwest League All Star Game, who I believe appears that he's gotten called up to Palm Beach now, which is great. Um, he's a really nice guy. He's a former wrestler from New Jersey. He won a state championship out there and he worked out with Jack Flaherty in the off season actually, and learned a variation of Flaherty slider grip and started using it. He's been really successful this year. He was the Peoria closer for a while. Last time I was down there, he, I think pitched an inning and struck out three guys and got this save in the game. So he's not really a name that is a prospect at all, but he's one of these guys who tinkers very slightly and starts to succeed. So you never know with these guys. Like if he's a really big guy, he's physically, um, I, easily able to handle start his workload but got transferred over to a reliever and um it looks like he got called up i did not know that he got promoted so i'm looking at the palm beach roster and i recognize that name on there i don't recognize any of the other names though so <laughs> <laughs> i recognize one that's alex reyes on their stats page and ah really this, i didn't see that this hurts very much looking at this in his minor league stats right now so this is kind of a weird question lance but Sure. The Cardinals have this reputation of training out to what we can call devil magic products. These kind of <laughs> non-prospects, yes. 40 to 45 overall value guys who just become these kind of two to three one players. Paul Dion was one of them. Do you have any guys that are kind of your personal favorites in the minors? They can be guys currently, Peoria, the low minors, or, you know, guys who have kind of graduated higher in the system that you think could be kind of that next sneaky good player at the major league level? Ah, that's tough. In the Cardinal system, no one really jumps out to me in particular. I, I did actually, it's funny you bring that up because I always joke about that with anyone that knows I'm a Cardinals fan and has some baseball knowledge. Like, they always bring up, like, the Cardinal Devil Magic. And I think that a commenter actually asked that in the uh, in a nicer way, asked if the Cardinals Devil Magic was sustainable, basically with guys like Ponce de Leon who come up and throw really well and Gomer who comes up and throws really well. But I, I'm not exactly sure what it is that creates such successful pitching prospects i always thought for a long time when i was younger that it was a product of the major league pitching coast and liliquist to some extent but obviously we don't have liliquist anymore we have mike maddox and we swap at the nationals so that seems to be not really true and i think that the more i've gotten into the minor leagues i I understand probably player development a little bit more than i have and it has to be internal in terms of their development and what they know about pitching and how to develop guys i always felt like the cardinals and i could be completely off base with this but i feel like the cardinals have a tendency to enjoy pitchers with with changeups that are a little bit more advanced than others, and I this was one of the reasons I actually thought they were going to go with Jackson Coar, who was a pitcher from Florida, 
in the draft this year. We ended up going to Kansas City. They went Gorman said obviously. But they have this affinity, I think, for guys like Luke Weaver and guys like Michael Waka. And we saw Ponce de Leon as a decent changeup, I think, personally. And even Gomer, I thought, had a decent changeup. And that's a pitch that is, is very hard to develop. It is very hard to teach because it's so ref-based and feel-based. And I, it's just the concept. I've talked to a lot of guys about how to, simply how to throw a changeup. And all of them tend to say something along the lines of, it's it's literally all grip based. It's the same arm action as a fastball, and it's just how it rolls off the fingers and the natural pronation of the hand based on where your finger placement is that causes it. And that alone is terrifying to me. So the fact that they're targeting guys maybe to some extent who have some affinity with the changeup already makes me think that it's it's just easier for them to develop a breaking ball with some of these guys and get them to be viable major leaguers. Now, it doesn't make them immediately like plus major leaguers. Like we're not gonna see them develop a bunch of Carlos Martinez's, but and this goes, again, just for the pitches. I don't know what's going on with the hitting side where they're able to produce guys like Pham and et cetera, hand over fish, Paul DeYoung, et cetera. But I always thought my theory was that they like guys with good change-ups, and they're able to add a breaking ball to that repertoire, and you're able to eliminate any split issue a guy might have if he's a righty able to throw a change-up to a lefty. That's kind of a theory I've always had. Again, I don't know how true it is, but in terms of guys that are starters right now in the minor leagues that jump out to me um, for the Cardinals, I would have to jump to their prospect list and make some – guesses um who might but I, I don't have anyone off the top of my head that i would say keep an eye out for at the moment but i did like what i saw a lot from gomer in terms of his arm slot and he's really really deceptive with his curveball he's got a really heavy trunk tilt and how that pitch comes out of his hand i think that's extremely deceptive and i like him a little bit more than i like ponce de leon even though ponce de leon's start was probably a little bit better i just thought that the projectability on his arm is is relatively promising in terms of what he can do and the fact that he could throw a change from that arm slot and it is not terrible, which I thought it was going to be when I when I first kind of heard that he had to change up with that arm slot. So um, I like Gomer, though. I thought Gomer was very interesting, and I'm interested to see some Dakota Hudson as well, who doesn't seem to have the same kind of strikeout levels as either Ponce de Leon or um, Gomer. But uh, I guess we'll see. Yeah, and some of this stuff with kind of analyzing the Cardinals and their player development tendencies is difficult because – since 2011, we're on, I believe, our fourth scouting director now, going from Luno to Kantrovitz to Correa briefly, and now after Correa had the whole hacking scandal, Randy Flores. <laughs> and I've noticed that same thing where, especially with Flores, these first two or three years with him as the head scouting director kind of managing all the draft operations. On the pitching side, and I don't know if this is just kind of my selective memory at play here, but it does seem like the Cardinals have kind of targeting these pitchers that have a very well-developed plus single kind of secondary pitch, mm-hmm. hoping that they can kind of create a curriculum around that pitch. I think Griffin Roberts, who they took in the second round this year, is a really good example yeah, of that. Yep, very true. Yeah, very good slider and kind of building it all around that. And I went to that blogger event where we were talking to Mosellock and DeWitt, and Mosellock said that they were going to create kind of like a pitching lab, almost like a... Oh, what's the name of that Trevor Bauer place? Driveline. Driveline, yeah. Where they're going to kind of curtail all this data that they would collect on pitchers' spin rate and stuff. And I think they were going to set it up in Jupiter to kind of build their pitching development around that for future players. I, I would be 100% a proponent of that. I think that's something they should have done years ago. Um, and I'm happy that they're at least getting to it now because we've seen that with so many pitchers. One of the one of my favorite stories from the offseason was Adam Adovino. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he basically created variations of his slider – by setting up a uh, – he bought a warehouse in New York or something like that and put up a mound and then a, a super high-speed camera and just, like, had a Rapsodo system, which is, like, this 
this kind of cool interface that you set up that's really expensive that shows you spin efficiency and like the axis and all this other stuff. He learned all that and then learned how to like throw other pitches and has become a dominant reliever, obviously for the Rockies, who we'll see in this coming week as he, as they come into Bush. But yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm really happy they said that. I, I I'm almost a little bit irked that they didn't already have it, but maybe the cars are a little bit older school in terms of how they develop things. But I in terms of the knowledge that's out there, especially with companies like Driveline and and the production of players and being able to understand how to how to spin pitches, how to spin them efficiently, how to get it just how to develop pitchers in this new age is is super super important. And I think we'll start to see in the next you know four to five years. We look back in four to five years on teams that don't have good minor league pitching. I would bet that there's a strong correlation between those teams who are slow to adapt a lot of these newer tactics in terms of how to reinvent pitches and pitchers themselves. Yeah, and I guess I can kind of pivot this to Heather, who's been kind of doing that weekly series chronicling Jordan Hicks and the updates with him, but <laughs> mm-hmm. Hicks was one of those guys, and I don't think a lot of fans realize it because he had such a huge huge discrepancy with his ERA and FIP and some of the other peripheral stats early in the season. But Hicks, yes, he was getting the ground balls, but he's never been kind of one of these high spin rates guys where it was concerning with him looking at really not getting any swings and misses despite the high velocity early in the season. But that kind of has changed now, and I think at the major league level, they are utilizing kind of that more two-seam movement he has, and almost like a sinker, which is just ridiculous to think about 102 with sinker slash two-seam movement on it. So I completely agree with you that we are going to see now kind of teams that are more progressive in their player development system stand out, and I think that could be almost a new money ball or that competitive advantage because teams have a lot of the same information with current major league players as far as stack has things like that where you can't necessarily poach kind of these you know free agents for a really high bargain anymore so i think it will be you know the key to roster construction now you look at the cubs the reason they've been able to be as successful as they are having chris bryant locked up and kyle schwarber and addison russell and all these guys on these really cheap team control contracts and i think I guess I'll pivot this to Heather or Lance, whichever one of you wants to answer it. Are you confident right now in the Cardinals, their player development system, but just kind of the farm situation as a whole to kind of ease into this transition from the current core veteran guys like Carpenter to this next wave of young players? That's an interesting question. Um, I'll, I'll answer very briefly, and I will say, yes, I continue to be confident just because historically they've been very good at it. I won't go into too many other details on it, but I will say just because I, I always like tossing shade on the Cubs now that I'm in Chicago. The Cubs farm system is, uh, I would say, borderline atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably bottom five in baseball for me in terms of just the prospects I follow. They really have nothing in that system that intrigues me at all, which means that to some extent, even though the Cardinals I don't think is top half, I guess, I, I don't think it is. I'd say it's right at the middle, which seems to be what the Cardinals are always at, which is fine with me. But um, I, I think the viability for the future, like sure they have all these guys locked up on the Cubs side of things, but I think at some point, they're going to have to really introspect and understand that they don't have anything that's intriguing. Like, I hear they're moving towards a deal to get Cole Hamels, very low-level prospects in that deal, but their top prospect moved over to the Cardinals system probably isn't top four or five, in my opinion. I think uh, Ramos Aidman is the shortstop they have, glove first guy. I saw him. I didn't really like him too much on the bat side of things, although he has a plus glove. Then they have another guy, Albert Alzole from the Cubs, who is hurt, and uh, that system is, is depleting. And... That's all I'm going to say. I just want to toss some shit on the Cubs, and then I'll kick it to Heather. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of agree with uh, with what you've said. Historically, the Cardinals have seemed to be 
uh, some one of the best in player development. I know on the pitching side, um, when uh, Joe Schwartz, 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 <laughs> however his last name is pronounced, he's going to kill me, but uh, how, uh, he when he would do his interviews with pitchers, most of them mentioned Jason Simontachi as uh, being crucial in their development. Uh, so they have quite a few guys that, uh, like, they're the original, you know, the Cardinals are the original player development team, and it just seems like that that's their, that's their thing, you know? Um, especially yeah. since the Cardinals consistently uh, are successful, uh, varying degrees of success, but successful generally, they don't have a lot to work with as far as different draft picks, and I think that's why they tend to go towards those more polished kind of college arms mm. um, because they are picking in the middle of the draft and they don't have the opportunity to get one of those top bats or or to, like electric arms because they're gone. <laughs> those like super crazy awesome ones are are already picked so they have to go for the more like lower ceiling but higher floor type of guys and I think that that shapes a lot of their development and a lot of their uh, drafting practices is the fact that they expect to be drafting near the end of the <laughs> of the round I, I think that's actually a really, really good point because I almost feel like the cars have become used to it, as I think you're saying, Heather. And I almost think it's funny when teams maybe aren't used to picking at the top of drafts, how they go about it. Because I, I can't say I have any insight that is over the general fan in terms of what exactly goes on in a draft room. But I would bet that there's probably like 15 names that the cars can immediately knock off the board because if they're picking in between – 50, or excuse, we'll say we'll say 10 names. I don't want to exaggerate. So, so say if they're picking between 18 and 30 or whatever, like they're not going to get after a guy like like the top any of the top five picks this year. Whereas if you're a team like the Phillies or one of these other teams, you have to consider literally everybody. And it may seem like a, a small difference to consider everybody versus you know not everybody, but I think that takes some pressure off the Cardinals to immediately go out and allocate scouting to towards guys who they project to go in the second, third, fourth round. Like Griffin Roberts, I believe, for an extended period of time, was considered a first-round pick. And I liked that you brought him up earlier, Tyler, because he's, he's a very good pitcher. Getting is a really, really good slider, I believe it is. And I think a lot of people consider that a plus pitch. He's had some other issues and stuff. But they're going after a guy, like you're saying, who has a developed secondary. And I think they're used to that. Whereas I almost think some teams picking in the first round or second round who aren't used to a certain slot maybe have to alter their strategy in terms of how they're highlighting and targeting players. So... I, I wouldn't be shocked at all if that's one of the things. The Cardinals are so used to picking between, like, 18 and 25 that they're always like, great, we're going to go with the college arm here because we know the floor on these guys is amazing. We'll at least be able to get X war out of this guy as opposed to this high school bat. You know, there's some rumors that the Cardinals were going after Bryce Terang, who I believe went to the Brewers. He's at shortstop in California. He's kind of like a defense first guy. But I, I just refuted that from the start because I was just like, they just tend not to go with guys like that. Like, if anything, the Cardinals go with it's it's a polished whatever it is, you know? And, of course, they go with Gorman, who I guess makes me an idiot and <laughs> because Gorman's, again, a high school bat. He's a little bit unpolished, but I will put that aside because I love Gorman. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess to kind of build off what you were saying, I completely agree with both of you as far as the Cardinals' kind of draft philosophy, especially towards the top of the draft. And 
like you, Lance, I was expecting the Cardinals to go towards either Crowar from Florida or Gilberts from Stetson, I believe it was. Kind of oh, one of these yep. more polished uh, college arms that they had been linked to. And really, Nolan Gorman was kind of the only one of these high school bats that if he fell to them, I know he was slotted in some mock drafts as high as Atlanta at 7 or 8, yes. I believe. Mm-hmm. And I guess, do you think a pick like Gorman either does mark a shift, or do you think the Cardinals should kind of shift away from that risk aversion of, you know, the safer, more polished, older college arms? Should they maybe try to swing for the fences when they get the chance on you know, these maybe less proven high school bats are in the international markets, spending a little more on kind of these high upside guys, obviously with the money restrictions and the bonus pool, they didn't have that ability this year. But do you think the Cardinals should just kind of write the course with the way they have been doing things, or should they go for kind of those lottery tickets, swing for the fences type of prospects? I think that uh, I'll give a common answer here. I think it really depends on the player. And I'd be, I'd be really, really interested in talking to their head of scouting or anyone that would be willing to give any slight of insight into how exactly the decision was made to go with Gorman. Because as you mentioned, Gorman was in January, Brady Singer was considered the top overall pick. He ended up going, I believe, to the Reds. Um, or no, excuse me, he went to the, the Royals, actually, um, much later than he was projected to go initially. And Gorman was another guy who was a top five pick for a very long time, had some struggles in the spring and fell. So while I'd like to think that the cars were approaching the draft tending to go with the original strategy when they saw Gorman falling that much I think there's a point at which you assume that risk knowing that at one point you considered Gorman a top five pick and putting together my personal draft board is just how I like guys I had Gorman like top seven just because I liked him a lot I thought I think just his hands and his bat speed are just I, there was really no one else that's a true pure power bat who's shown that power at multiple levels sure it's high school sure maybe not the best competition out in Arizona where he played but he performed in perfect game against some top Florida pitchers. Like he was really good in, in small showcases. And I think he stood out. He had some of the loudest contacts, some of the best power, some of the best raw power. And I think to some extent, even if the girls came in going, we want Coar because he's a low risk. He's from Florida. Even guys like Pocky, et cetera, and Fido have health problems that have come from Florida in the past. We still think that Coar can be good. We can develop him. He resembled a lot of Michael Walker to me because he had a really good changeup. Wasn't extending too, too much. I would I'm a little bit worried he ends up with shoulder problems because of that, but I, I would I would love to talk to someone in the Cardinals front office and get any bit of insight if they'd be willing to give it at all, which I doubt they will. But in just <laughs> what went into that, so what at what point in the draft season for them did they look at the board and go, we have a shot to get Gorman? Do we deviate from the general strategy of going with college pitchers and how that deci- decision went from no to yes? Because I think that that's kind of what happened. I think they came in as you're saying, Tyler, with. A preconceived notion that they were going to go with a good college starting pitcher, get value out of him. And then when they realized that Gorman might be around, they started to calculate whether they would be willing to deviate from a strategy they'd gone with for an extended period of time and go with a guy like Gorman, who's a, a raw bat with some swing and miss. But really, is it a prospect I think they've had too many of in the last couple of years with this much raw power? So I, I'm going to defer kind of to what the front office was thinking. But again, I'm, I'm really interested in terms of what that thought process was. Yeah, I would defer too. And I think it is interesting when we kind of are assembling and accumulating this kind of mini historical precedents for this, where you go back to 2016 with someone like Delvin Perez. He was linked as high as number two to Cincinnati, I believe. That's the year they took Hunter yeah. Green. Then the PED test happens with him. He slides all the way down to... I believe it was 23 overall for the Cardinals that year. Nick Plummer's another one of those guys who's kind of that's like you alluded to earlier, the toolsy, more athletic, kind of more raw outfield prospect. So maybe this is just us kind of 
overreacting to a very small sample of guys we've kind of cherry-picked, or, you know, maybe the Cardinals and their calculus, in especially towards the earlier portion of the first-year player draft, has changed. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm interested to see, even if it changes more going forward, too, you know, I think every draft is very different in terms of what happens. There's a lot of high school arms in this draft, a lot of college arms in this draft. This draft coming up and next year, it already looks like it's kind of more bat-based, so depending on where the Cardinals end up, they're kind of middle of the road again maybe they end up with another like 14 to 18 pick and i maybe they go with another strategy where they see a guy fall to them that they like but i mean then again if, they, if there's a college arm they like around there i think that a lot of people thought from stetson logan gilbert was a really good fit he pitched down the cape really well i really really liked him and he went to the manners obviously but um i i mean maybe maybe the next three years we're looking at another three college starting pitchers that turn into michael walker-esque guys and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that Absolutely, and we've been going on for excess of an hour now, I believe, so I guess we can start to wrap things up a little briefly. It's almost kind of become a mini-tradition since Heather and I kind of rebooted this podcast to end with going around with kind of a very serious journalistic question. So I guess this week it will be, is there a better name in the Cardinals organization right now than Lars Nupar? (laughs) Oh, man, can I defer to us? was a stubby clap can i go manager on this sure <laughs> i like stubby clap i think that's a great name <laughs> all right heather where do you stand on who has the 80 grade name in the Cardinals system oh man that's i don't know that's that well that's their newest one their newest one of their newer draftees right mm-hmm. yeah he was taken this year in the ninth round i believe because I remember, I think Brisby mentioned him, uh, and he does a post like every year, Grant Brisby, about the draft names. I think that was the winner. I like Ponce de Leon, though. Like, I, it's classic. <laughs> There's a lot of puns possible with that. So that's that's one of my favorites. I, I've also heard it said in a variety of ways with varying French accents, which I find very hilarious. So uh, I, I like that as well, Heather. Yeah. <laughs> I like the names that are kind of almost like other words. Like, I believe it was the Reds last year picked a guy named Cash Case. Yeah, yeah, Cash Case. Yep, I can't say that name. That one screwed me up for the longest time. <laughs> yeah, it has... I always think I said Cash Chase or Chase Cash. I just couldn't get it out. My tongue doesn't work <laughs> when I try to say it. Yeah, and the last name Newtbar almost has a shock value to it where... You feel like you're reading, like, a candy bar at the grocery store aisle more than a draft board. I like it. I agree. <laughs> yeah, but Stubby Clap, though, I am very tempted to hop on the Stubby Clap for manager bandwagon, if only for the name. Yeah, it looks like his name is Richard Keith, so I don't know how he got the name Stubby, but uh, um, <laughs> I don't even think I want to know. He's short. <laughs> he's 5'8". Okay, so he's, he's short. Maybe that's it. This is going to be one of those stories, like, and Heather, you're probably our resident expert on Scooter Jeanette's. What was the origin story for his nickname again? Um, he, when he was like five, watched Muppet Babies, and Scooter was his favorite Muppet Baby. <laughs> no way, I did not know this. That's the story, yeah. Wasn't uh, there... <laughs> I actually got to talk to him, I've told this story on this podcast before, uh, but I actually talked to him a little bit before a game one time because we like did this uh, the 6K and and won on tickets and we got to go on the field before the game started. 
I was trying to get Scooter Gannett's or Jeanette's attention and someone in my group like just yelled Scooter really loud and he turned around and I said I'm Scooter too <laughs> I love and he it. goes he turns around and he's like you're Scooter too and I said yeah he goes you copied me <laughs> so then I went and researched when he was called Scooter and it was when he was five and I've been Scooter since I was a baby and since he's only like two or three years older than me uh, I've been Scooter longer, so really, he copied me. <laughs> <laughs> you should have told him. <laughs> I sent him. A, I sent him a letter after that. Ah, I I see, looked it, I it was too late. Yeah, I looked it up afterwards. That's but I sent. Funny. I did send him a letter. I was like, "Yeah, you said you co- I, I copied you, but actually, I've been Scooter longer. So <laughs> you so really funny. copied me. Sorry, this is pretty weird. But good luck with the rest of your season." <laughs> <laughs> And then he proceeded to hit four home runs against us. Yes, that was his revenge, Scooter's revenge. I I actually wrote the game recap for that game last year, and uh, I didn't know he had three home runs until he got up for the fourth time. (laughs) I just didn't believe it. Like They were like, he has three home runs. I was like, wait, I've watched three Scooter Jeanette home runs, and I didn't even realize it, so... (laughs) That was yeah, my, my story was, about that that game. <laughs> my phone was lighting up that game because everyone's like mad at me. <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, what's, what? I wasn't funny. watching it at the time either. I was so disappointed. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And I turned the game on and he had hit four home runs. Like, oh. Yeah. Good for him. <laughs> if I remember that game correctly, it was one of kind of those one ifs. There was a the pitch before two pitches before he had a fly ball. It, it was down the right field line that went foul, I think. I can't remember who the right fielder was, but he had the option. Does he catch it and give up the guaranteed sacrifice fly, or does he let it drop? And I'm pretty sure he lets it drop, and then Wainwright gives up a grand slam to him. Oh, wow. I don't even remember that. I think, yeah, so if not for that, if they just taken the sure outs, there would be no historical four home run game. Or I could be completely misremembering all this. (laughs) Also, I wouldn't doubt that you're right. That seems yeah, too specific I, of a memory to, to fan, you know? I dare anyone to fact check that. Fact check <laughs> us. I dare you. Of course they will, but... <laughs> also, I am on the uh, scholarly safe haven wikipedia.org right now on Scooter Jeanette's page. This story gets better about him with his personal, uh, his nickname. So it started with a childhood incident with the police. As a child, he would constantly remove his seatbelts while traveling in the car, angering his mother... His mother then took Scooter to the police to attempt to scare him into keeping his seatbelt on. When police asked for Jeanette's name, he replied with Scooter instead of his birth name and has gone by it ever since. <laughs> wow, oh, this awesome. is it. This story that's... has folds upon folds. <laughs> he, he'll, if he ever gets like arrested later in life, he'll have an alias from that, <laughs> from that moment. It's like the Ron White cater salad story. <laughs> Man, we've really gone full circle now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have discussed everything. St. Louis Cardinals, Palm Beach Cardinals, every Cardinals in between. So I guess we can kind of, as tradition, round things out. Tether, do you have any social media things on the site you want to plug? Sure. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, LIL underscore Scooter 93. And you can read my writing at Viva Alberto's Monday through Friday at 12 noon. All right, Lance, did you have anything? Yeah, I, uh, my column usually comes out Wednesday, either morning or night, depending on if the Cardinals have a day game or a night game. 
for VB. Um, I root for a bunch of other sites, too. I encourage you just to follow me on Twitter, at Lance Brozdow, B-R-O-Z-D-O-W, um, and keep up with my stuff. I've been writing a lot of columns, um, some cool reporting stuff for actually some of the other SB Nation sites. Um, I talked to Mackenzie Gore the other day a couple times, actually, uh, in Fort Wayne, who is a really cool individual. And if anyone follows prospects, you, you probably know he's a big lefty for the Padres. So um, I'm doing a lot of stuff like that. I'm trying to actually sync up with Hunter Green. So uh, I'm trying to, I guess, I guess, knock off every elite pitching prospect and sit down with them and do a little profile. So that's been a lot of fun. But follow me on Twitter. I'm always having some kind of content coming out on a weekly basis. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Tyler underscore opinion. And on the site, well, you'll know that this podcast has gone up at 7 a.m. Sometimes I have posts there. If I'm not doing a podcast that week at 10 a.m. on Fridays. And then I also do the VEB daily post on Tuesdays at 8 a.m. So I guess if nobody else has any final thoughts, Heather, you thought I was joking about this last week. I'm serious. We're going to end every single one of these with an inspirational quote. I was actually looking some up just in case you forgot. Because I'm like, I have some inspirational (laughs) quotes ready to go in case case you forgot, but you didn't. Okay. What's what's this week's? (laughs) What is this week's? I don't know. I'm just going to close my eyes and pick one. Okay, I... Found one right here. This is from Theodore Roosevelt. We actually have who it's from this week. Keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground. Ooh, I like that. Again, like last week, my job's not to interpret that for you because (laughs) I'm not capable of that. Only you can. (laughs) I love it. All right. Any final inspirational words, things about the Cardinals, either of you want to say? I think that was a beautiful ending. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This has been episode 123 of the Viva Alberto's podcast. And I don't know what this will be edited down to, but I think this is an omen. Our current recording time is one hour and 23 minutes. So I was wondering, I was hoping it would be. Yeah. And we have five seconds till that changes. So we're going to end it now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>